I heard about a guy in Texas who invited a lot of bachelors out to his ranch for a barbecue. When he got them all together, he stood up before them and said, Look over the edge at that little lake on my ranch. I've filled it with alligators. He said, if there is anyone willing to get in there with those gators and go from this end of the lake to the other side, I will give you one of three things. I'll give you a 500 acre ranch or a million dollars in cash or the hand of my daughter in marriage. Whichever one you want. He had no sooner said that than splash! Somebody went into the water. The rancher looked over the edge and there was a guy in the lake that didn't even take off his shoes, still wearing his nice suit. He was flying across the lake as fast as humanly possible. Water was splashing and alligators were snapping and thrashing, trying to chase him down, but he made it all the way to the other side. He climbed out of the lake soaking wet, but without a scratch on him. He was completely exhausted, trying to catch his breath. The rich Texan went over to him, and this is what he said. Son, I meant that as a practical joke. I didn't really mean for anyone to swim in that water. But you did it, and I am as good as my word. <clears throat> so, which one do you want? The 500 acre ranch? The one million dollars in cash? Or my daughter's hand in marriage? The young man looked at the rich Texan and said, I don't want none of them. I just want to get my hands on the guy who pushed me in the water. That's what I want. <clears throat> this morning we are going to look at a very familiar passage involving two people who entered the water by choice. They weren't pushed. But rather, they were drawn to the water by God for the sake of righteousness. Last week, Matthew introduced us to the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember that? Please tell me you do. Okay. This rough and tough 
kind of guy, dressed in camel's hair, eating grasshoppers and, and wild honey, who was out there in the desert in the region of Judea along the Jordan River. If you remember, John was, was preaching to multitudes of people from all walks of life who were coming out to see Him and to hear Him. And He was baptizing many of them with a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming King who was on His way. That's the setting for our next passage. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we will pick up where we left off beginning with verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13, where Matthew tells us, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? When we last saw Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 2, He was still a child. Somewhere around the age of two. Settling into, his, into the home of His upbringing in Nazareth. But then, but here, Jesus is now some 30 years old. So there's a huge gap of information about Him up to this point. Now we know from Luke, Dr. Luke, that even as a youngster, Jesus was devoted to His Father in heaven. And if you remember His trip to Jerusalem, at the age of 12, Jesus got separated from His parents, Joseph and Mary, who were on their way back home before realizing they left Jesus behind. And after three days, Jesus was eventually discovered in the temple discussing the law with the religious leaders. Apparently, the temple was the very last place Joseph and Mary thought to look. And when Mary asked Jesus where he had been and what he had been doing, Questions any concerned mom would have. We hear the very first, the very first recorded words 
by Jesus. These are his very first recorded words. Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Oftentimes when when reading something, we miss the tone. We miss the inflection in the voice. But I have no doubt that in a very respectful way, as a youngster, Jesus said this as a gentle way of reminding His parents that His Father was God. And as such, His life was not His own. The Father had already laid out a plan for His Son. And He would follow that plan. Well, after this, we're told that Jesus returned with His parents back to Nazareth, where He was submissive to them, and He grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus lived His life in Nazareth, in obscurity, as a carpenter's son. And later, Jesus would follow in the footsteps of Joseph and become a carpenter himself. Day in and day out, except for the Sabbath, Jesus was a builder. That's what the word carpenter means in the Greek. He's a builder. A fitting occupation for the creator of everything and the fixer of broken things. He's a builder working with wood and maybe even working with stone and metal involved in all types of projects for the people in the community. That's what Jesus was doing. In fact, if you think about it, except for His last three years. That's what He does for most of His earthly life. He's a builder. So as Jesus is covered in rock chips and sawdust, John the Baptist is further south in the desert along the Jordan River. I'm guessing he's been there for several months preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is coming. And he's baptizing multitudes of people in the river as an act of repentance. 
Then one day. Then one day. Jesus leaves all that he has known. Makes his way down south. Shows up at the river. And gets in line in waist deep water for his turn. John baptizes the person in front of Jesus. Maybe he says a few parting words to that person. And then he looks up. And there is Jesus standing right in front of him. And in essence, John says, whoa. That's how we translate that. Whoa. Let me say, I, I wrestled with this passage for many hours. Like, what? I wrestled with this with, for hours because I don't know what John knows about Jesus at this point. I don't know what John knows about Jesus at this point. I mean, at this point, John has not seen the sign of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove to confirm his identity. But evidently, John knew enough, or maybe he sensed enough, by the Spirit's prompting to cause him to step back in the water and humbly say to Jesus, how can I baptize you? I'm not worthy. If anything, you should baptize me. John is completely humbled in the presence of Jesus. And somehow, some way, John knows without any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is far more superior and truly righteous. And so he's reluctant to baptize Jesus. And with that, Jesus has some insightful and encouraging words for John. And in verse 15, this is what we are told. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So Jesus tells John that this baptism should be permitted. It was a necessary step in order to fulfill all righteousness. 
It's a step in the right direction. And I want you to notice that in this verse, this is something for both John and Jesus to do together. Do you notice the word us? The word us in that verse. This baptism was fitting for the sake of righteousness for both of them. Not just Jesus. Both John and Jesus were doing something of great symbolic importance. For John, he was the one who has been crying out in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the voice from God that Isaiah spoke about from long ago. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, clearing the way. So for John, it was fitting to baptize Jesus as a symbolic way, if you will, of passing the torch. For Jesus, it was fitting to take the torch and to set into motion the promises that were foretold about Him in the Old Testament. But that's not all. Jesus entered the same water just like the people around Him so that He may identify with them. This is why Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven in the first place and came to earth as a human being to live among us, to identify with us, to be tempted just like us and yet without sin so that He might faithfully endure the wrath of God for us. This was God's plan for Jesus all along to identify with humanity and this baptism in the river in waist-deep water was a step in that direction. For Jesus, this baptism also served as an example for those who would later follow Him. Jesus was a model of humility as He obediently submitted to the will of His Father in heaven. Jesus was completely sinless. A baptism of repentance was not necessary for He had nothing to repent of. However, Jesus still modeled for us, in a simple way, what humble obedience looks like by surrendering to the will of His Father. As an act of humble obedience, we are to follow the example that Jesus set for us because, and this is a sobering thought, others might be following our example. 
a three-year-old was on the heels of his mother. You know what that's like, right? On the heels of his mother, everywhere she walked around the house. Time and time again, she'd trip over her small son. She suggested her son play with his toys. But he said he was okay. And said, I'd rather be here with you. Then he continued to bounce happily along behind her. After stepping on her toes for the fifth time, she began to lose her patience. The mother asked him why he was acting this way, and he looked up with her with his soft blue eyes and said, Well, Mommy, my Sunday school teacher told me to walk in Jesus' footsteps, but I can't see him, so I'm walking in yours. So we need to follow in the Lord's example in humility and submission for there are those who might be following our example. Now there's one more thing I want to mention about this baptism. As a Christian, when we are immersed in the water like Jesus. We are, in many respects, looking back, looking back to the death and to the burial and the resurrection of our Lord. That's the picture that water baptism paints for us. But when Jesus was baptized by John, maybe he was looking ahead at the very same thing. Anticipating his own death and burial and resurrection on our behalf on behalf of the lost and guilty sinners he had come to save. So as a step in the right direction for both of them to fulfill all righteousness, John baptizes Jesus. And that brings us to verse 16. Verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well placed. When Jesus came out of the water, there was an immediate confirmation by his family. 
by his family. If you notice, in this scene, Jesus, the Son of God, sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And he heard the Father's approval. This scene was something like a family reunion. Like a a graduation ceremony where all three persons of the Trinity are present. All three persons. And if John did not know exactly who Jesus was before, after experiencing all of this, there is no doubt now. He knows for sure. Jesus is the King and the Messiah He's been preaching about all along. Like a dove, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and a voice from heaven is heard, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I want to speak on that for a moment. The Greek language here indicates that God the Father not only found delight in Jesus at that moment, but that the Father had always found delight in Jesus. And that's important, and I like what Pastor Joe Fuchs had to say about this passage, and he gave me a lot to think about. As you know, for many years, Jesus had worked in the carpenter shop. I imagine often drenched in sweat and covered with all sorts of of building materials. And the Father was saying, I was well pleased with him then. The Father was pleased when Jesus consoled Mary after her husband Joseph had died. Mary would become a widow. The Father was pleased when Jesus spoke to his half-brothers and his half-sisters about the things of God. And later, after the Lord's resurrection, James and Jude would come to follow Jesus and write their own books in the New Testament. The Father was pleased with Jesus. He had always been pleased with Jesus. Before Jesus went public, before He had ever preached a sermon, before He had ever performed a miracle, before He had ever went to battle with the self-righteous religious leaders, before He would ever forgive sins, before He went to the cross, The Father was pleased with Jesus. And that's important because sometimes we separate the secular from the sacred. 
suggesting that one is more important than the other. Yes, they are different. But if you are His, hear me here, if you are His, then be His carpenter. Be His auto mechanic. Be His computer programmer. Be His rancher and farmer. Be His secretary. Be His mother who's in the home raising children. Be His Sunday school teacher. Whatever the case may be, wherever God has uniquely placed you, then be His in that role. For He is delighted in you, and one day you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Be His. The Father was already well pleased with His Son. He makes that announcement from heaven. And then from the Jordan River, there's no time to celebrate. Jesus is immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the barren wilderness to be tempted by Satan for some 40 days. And we will dive into that experience next week. But later, after his time in the wilderness, Jesus returns to the river. Back to John the Baptist again. And that's where I want to pick up. In the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, okay? In chapter 1, beginning with verse 29, we read this. The next day, he, referring to John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher, who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him but so that He might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the One who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I Myself have seen 
and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus, looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. This had to be an interesting time for John the Baptist. Of all the great Old Testament prophets who have ever prophesied about the coming King and Messiah, John the Baptist is the only prophet who physically gets to look Jesus in the face. To see Him eye to eye. He's seen Jesus. He's even baptized Him. And He saw the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus like a dove, confirming, in fact, He is the Son of God. It was an unbelievable moment for John. Surely the pinnacle of his entire ministry. Now after Jesus had been baptized and after spending 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, as I said, once again, Jesus returns to the Jordan River where John is still preaching and baptizing just a little further north this time. And in this passage I just read, we're told that Jesus is noticed by John the Baptist, who was there with two of his own disciples. And John says to them, Behold, the Lamb of God. That word behold in this context is another way of saying look at Him. Look at Him. That's what John commands his own disciples to do. Look at him. That's the Lamb of God. John comes from a priestly family line. He knows that millions, millions of lambs had been sacrificed at the temple. But here, in essence, he says, that's the Lamb. God's perfect 
lamb. The lamb that God Himself has sent as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Look at Him. That's what John says to those around him who are listening. And today, I think that's what John would also say to us as well. Look at him. This world is going crazy. Look at him. In our society, we are tempted to do what we should not do, to have what we do not or should not have, and in sinful pride, to be what we should not be. Look at Him. Our nation no longer seems to be a nation under God as we might pledge. Don't look to Washington for an answer. Don't look to a political party for a remedy. Don't look to a president or a future president as some kind of savior. Look at him. Your life may be falling apart. Look at him. It may seem you are in the lion's den. Surrounded and threatened by those who want to eat you alive. Look at Him. You may feel that nobody understands you, cares for you, or loves you. Look at Him. Warren Worsby says, Look at others. And be distressed. Look at yourself and be depressed. Look at Him and you'll be blessed. In passing the torch, in passing the torch, John told his own disciples, Behold, look at Him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And they left John. And rightly so. And they followed Jesus. Look at Him. And follow Him. That's my encouragement for you this morning. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for time in your word. I thank you that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And Father, I thank You 
that you are pleased with Him. That you are always pleased with Him. So pleased that you allowed Him to take our sin. That's how pleased you were. He was so perfect. The only perfect Lamb who was able to take our sin. Thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to always look at Him. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Depending on your Bible translation, that word behold is mentioned over 1,500 times. 1,500 times. I wonder why that is. That's the word that, that causes us... You ever see a, like a kid and you look at me? You know, my mom did that. It means like, pay attention, right? Pay attention to me. 1,500 times that word is mentioned in the Bible. Maybe more depending on your translations. Why is that? (laughs) Because we have a tendency to get distracted. We have a tendency to look elsewhere. Do we not? We have a tendency to lose attention and our focus. I'm reminded of the story you all know where, where the disciples were on the, on the Sea of Galilee and they're by themselves. They, they're out in the middle and a storm is raging and Jesus takes a stroll out there. Hey, how's it going? They think Jesus is a ghost. No, it's just me, guys. Don't worry about it. And what does Peter do? Hey, Lord, call me out there. That looks awesome. I want to try that. So what does Jesus do? Come on out. The water's great. And Peter steps out of the boat. And what happens? He starts to actually walk. He's doing it. He's doing it. And then what happens? He starts to feel the the spray of the water. He feels the wind. He noticed the waves are they're kind of choppy. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks around at his circumstances. Bloop. 
Testament. That's what happens. And you know what? We are no different. And so my, my plea with you, no matter your circumstances, look at Him. Look at Him. That was not a suggestion by John. It's an imperative. That word imperative means it's a command. That was a command. Look at Him. And those are my words for you this morning. Look at Him. Now maybe you're here and you don't even know Him. I would love to tell you all about Him. At least what I know. Maybe you're looking for a church home, a place you just want to call your own. We would love to have you. Let me know that. Or maybe you just need prayer. I'd love to pray with you. However the Lord so moves you this morning, I just ask that you'd respond, not to me, but to Him. Larry? Larry?